Welcome to the Woodshop Life Podcast, a bi-weekly podcast focused on the craft of woodworking. woodworking. <laughs> I'm Guy from Guy's Woodshop, and as always, I'm joined by Hui Huen, also known as the Alabama Woodworker. Good evening, Guy. Hello, Hui. And Brian Schmidt, our new co-host. Actually, he's not so new anymore. You're not so new, buddy. I, so I was going to say, we're, we're, almost, uh, we're almost four months in here. Good evening, everybody. Yeah. yeah. Good evening. This podcast is intended to answer questions from the woodworking community and give you some of our perspectives on how we get things done in our own shops. And we also have a Patreon account. And right now we have one level and we're simply asking for a small donation just to try to cover the cost of bringing this podcast. So please go to patreon.com slash woodshoplife and stay tuned to the end of the show to hear about what we've got going on in our shops. So we're going to get right into the questions and Brian... You're up. My first question is from Craig Lassur. And Craig writes, question, I'm building a 28-foot table. I'm thinking that I will essentially build four tabletops and connect them with double breadboards with runners between the five trestles. Backstory, I'm a veteran and I run a program that addresses PTSD, substance abuse and homelessness in the veteran community. An essential component is that the veterans cook meals and eat together as the program has grown. There's an assortment of tables in the house, and I want to build a big one. I'm an average board worker, and I can do the basics. It doesn't have to be a piece of art, just chunky and uniform. Also, there's not a big endless budget, so I'm doing what I can. The vision, I have to build it in my garage and put it together on site. Again, 28 feet long, 38 inches wide based on the space dictating the width. And the only way Craig says he can think about working out, uh, jointing the board, or connecting the uh, sections together is a double breadboard and that joins each section. He thought about jo- and joining with dowels, alternating the lengths of the boards. So there's no single joint across the length of the board, uh, which was quite a puzzle to figure out and probably really difficult to do in the, in his garage, if I had to guess. And then having the, the trestles spaced under the middle breadboards with runners supporting the table between legs. So if you think about it, so 28 foot long table, he's going to break it into four seven foot long sections and Mm -hmm. 38 inches wide. And he's wondering how is he going to connect each of the four sections? Um, He actually sent me a picture of what he was describing with the double breadboard ends. And it's basically just tables with breadboards and each of the breadboards is going to connect to each other end to end like that. Um, Craig, I think that's a one, a really cool, really cool program. Um, it sounds a little bit similar to to the place where Guy and I both work, which is Purposeful Design. And at Purposeful Design, we are a Christian ministry that helps rebuild lives of individuals who have struggled with addiction, homelessness, and incarceration. And we provide work opportunity uh, and do on-the-job training and discipleship. And we do that in a custom furniture shop. Um, mm-hmm. So similar, similar type organization, perhaps, it sounds like. Um, I bring that up only because we do custom furniture there and this is a woodworking podcast. And if anybody's interested in checking it out, purposeful design, Craig, what I would do on this table is I would, I would probably wouldn't do the, the breadboards. Cause I'm not sure that I don't think it's necessarily going to make joining each section together any easier. I would mm-hmm. just focus on milling all of your boards to consistent width. So if you're going to be 38 inches wide, maybe you've got, um, maybe you've got six boards that are, you know, six and well, it's, it's going to be bad math. We'll call it six and a half inches. <laughs> it gets you close <laughs> and, and maintain kind of that consistent width in your board. Yeah. Um, so when you, when you glue up your four table sections at seven feet long, you're going to have, and you just kind of butt those together you can still do your trestle leg underneath there and use slotted holes in that to, to attach up into each of the sections um, to allow for expansion and contraction. But that way you'll get kind of a uniform look. Um, And I think the trestle leg will help to, to hold it flat, which is normally what the, the breadboard would help to, to accomplish. Um, We, what do you think? So uh, I can only think, of and i know this doesn't this probably doesn't stick within the budget but i know you guys use the domino connectors to connect you do not 
You do not. Okay. I've, I've suggested just, those a couple times, but we've never used them. Well, we've used we'll use Domino's, but then we'll use a Lamello in there too, just to kind of cinch it in place, and then the climax, have the Zeta P, the yeah. Zeta P. Yeah, yeah. Sorry, sorry, sorry. Yeah. I know of a guy who makes a lot of conference tables here and he does similar to what you guys do and what Craig is talking about making the sections. Um, I made the mistake of making a 12 foot conference table. and I made it 12 foot like continuous long boards. Uh, that was a bear to work with in my shop. And <laughs> yeah, it was, I don't think I'll do that again. <laughs> Uh, next time when I make a big conference table, I probably would purchase the domino connectors or, um, well, so what's, I'm sorry, my child is screaming in the background because that's what they do. Uh, what do you guys, would you guys use the domino connectors? Cause I'm curious about this too. Would it be a bad idea to use the domino connectors? No, we just, I suggested it a couple times, but uh -huh. unfortunately I don't make those decisions. So we never used them. Um, before we got the Lamello Zeta P, mm -hmm. what we would do for a lot of that stuff is we would use the the, the countertop miter connector things. Yep. You yep. know, okay. you, you, you route the... Like a keyhole sort of or dog it, bone you, type you, shape. You route a, yeah. a, a recess underneath and then it's just, it's just a bolt that mm -hmm. goes through and... I'm sure everybody knows what we're talking about. And that's what we use. And we, we aligned them with dominoes. Yeah. But we connected them and secured them with the, uh, I don't even know what they're called. I just call them the, the countertop counter bolts. Countertop counter bolts. Yeah. 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 And those actually work really, really, really well. It gives a nice, strong connection and they don't come apart. And that's a good way to join those sections together. And I agree with Brian that it's not necessary to do double breadboard ends. All you're doing is asking, you're, you're making it more complicated than it needs to be. Mm -hmm. um, you can use those, or if you have the budget, get the Lamello Zeta P, which yeah. is what we use now. And we still put the dominoes in there to align everything to make sure it stays flat. But yeah, then we then use the Clamex connectors mm -hmm. that go and then there's just a, a cam that turns and cinches them together. Yeah. yeah. Since, and then, then once you get that done, then you bolt the leg up underneath. Once that thing is all bolted together, it's not yeah. going anywhere. Yeah. So uh, do you go ahead, go ahead, Brian. And, and Craig in his question, he says, I'm an average woodworker. I'm an average woodworker and I can do the basics. So my guess is he probably doesn't have a domino, but he referenced sure. potentially using dowels. So you could use dowels to accomplish the same thing. Just, you know, make sure you've got good alignment for that. I, I would stay away from dowels. Would you? I, I would. I would use biscuits. Mm, okay. Oh, biscuits yeah. for alignment. Yeah. Yeah. They're more, they're more forgiving mm -hmm. than dowels but are. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's um, a good idea. And you can get a biscuit yeah. joiner at Harbor Freight for 40, 50 bucks. I wouldn't use those things. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I know you would. Maybe, maybe in the key would well. Depending on where you are, come on up and borrow, borrow my Lamello, or you can borrow my, my DeWalt that I have. And you you're go. more than welcome to use it. Um, or I would try to find another woodworker locally that appreciates what you're doing for the community mm -hmm. and see if they have yeah. one to lend you for this, this project or a but, domino if there's or, or domino. domino. Okay. Uh, that's fine too, but dominoes aren't very forgiving either. No. So, uh, I really recommend biscuits if you have them, but you so, can use the dominoes just tight on one side and loose on the other. So yeah, right. Right. Line. Yeah. Right. Now, uh, I don't know why I didn't think this, but uh, I actually used probably about three, four years ago, used the countertop connectors and the domino in conjunction with the uh, countertop connectors when I was helping a friend install uh, a countertop for their kitchen, a wooden countertop. I don't, I don't know why I didn't think of that, but that's, that's actually a really good idea. And I, I think I made a template, like a wishbone template that my router fit in. I just yeah. double stick taped it. It's really easy to, to do. Okay. All right. Oh, well, there you go. There's, there's a, there are a couple of options. 
I actually have a video of me doing that on YouTube. Oh, a countertop connector? Yeah. Okay. That in. How do I not know that one? I don't know. <laughs> You're not a super fan. Brian, <laughs> Brian knows. So, <laughs> all right. Uh, we, you've got the next question. I hope that helps. Yeah. So. Awesome. So Steve Feldman has uh, submitted a question here. And he, I'd like to first say that I listened to a bunch of other woodworking podcasts as well, but of all of them, Yours has the lowest level of useless, off-topic banter. Keep up the good work. Well, thank you, Steve. High praise. High praise. High praise. High praise. We we keep a woodworking topic, uh, a woodworking focused podcast on topic. All right, we're well, hitting out of the park. Stay on topic, we. All right, all right, all right. I have a question about the usage of my shop air cleaner. It is a Jet AFS one thousand B, and my ceiling is only seven foot six inches, so I can't hang it from there. So I have it on a roll around cart. That's actually a really good idea. My shop is 13 foot by 17 foot. I don't have a central dust collection system, but for the following tools, I hook up my shop back to the tool. That's a table saw, planer, drum sander, router table, and random orbit sander. I also have a circular saw, a handheld router, a jigsaw, a drill press, a belt sander, and a palm sander. My question is, for which tools should I be turning on the air cleaner? And on which settings? It has a low, medium, and high settings. And how long should I keep it on for after the tool has been turned off? So I also have a shop air cleaner. And the reason why I actually chose this question is because I really need to be using my shop air cleaner a lot more. For whatever reason, I always forget to to actually use it. And uh, recently I've been cutting a lot of dovetails and with the fret saw and the Japanese saw, there's a lot of that fine dust. And really that's, that's what a shop air cleaner is really for is for that finer dust that kind of settles on all your tools after you've turned off all your tools. So uh, I'll answer one of the questions right away. Use it as often as you can use it. Um, uh, I think when I had the overhead shop air cleaner, I've, I've got a uh, what is it, an axiom one that that sits on the floor and it's actually not a bad idea that you have it on a roll around cart because most of the dust is going to be settling down and so if as it sucks it in uh, it's blowing the cleaner air up around your face or where, where you'd be breathing uh, breathing it in you wouldn't be breathing it in on the floor but it's it's taking all that nasty air and bringing it closer to the floor uh, so that's not a bad idea that's a good idea but in, in your case, because you don't have a large dust collector, um, like a cyclone or whatnot, that, that's uh, really filtering out some of that finer dust, use it as often as you can. And I would leave it on, I don't know, maybe a half an hour to an hour um, after you've done, you've finished using your tools. I mean, I know there is an equation for, you know, how long you should keep it on based on, you know, circulating the air in your shop. But I don't know, half an hour to an hour afterwards. Um, but you should be using it as often as you can and bringing it close to the tool so that it's collecting that nasty fine dust closer to your tools. Um, Guy, I know you have a shop air cleaner, but I don't know, Brian, if you do. Do you have one, Brian? Yeah, I have the WEN, the, the cheap three-speed remote-controlled air filtration system. I think it was do you... Do you keep it on low, high, medium? Like, what do you what do you keep it on when you use it? I I usually turn it on high when I get in the shop and just let it run the whole time I'm in here, and then mm -hmm. I'll let it continue to run for yeah one to two hours after I leave. Okay, and guy, sure you've got the correct the way, but yeah, you got the Jet Shop Air Cleaner, right? Yeah, I don't know what the model number is, but they make two different ones. Okay, okay. What are your thoughts on this? Well, the, those air cleaners, the big, you know, it's like a big box with a fan and a, and a filter in it. Mm -hmm. they're, they're as different as dust collectors. You can get a more inexpensive one like the, the one that Brian has, mm -hmm. or you can get the, the more expensive one like the, the Jet or the Powermatic, and then there's other brands too. But they're, they all have different CFM ratings. Right. The one thing that we never do as woodworkers, I'd say we never do 
and this is a sexist thing to say, but this is something men don't do. So I'm being sexist towards men. I'm, I'm equal to all. Um, we don't read the stupid manual. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. If you pick up the manual for one of these air cleaners, they're very explicit about mounting these things on a wall. Mm-hmm. They're not designed to mount on the ceiling. Oh, okay. They're designed yeah. to circulate room air around the room. Hmm. And they tell you that at this speed, it will circulate, the, it will turn over the air inside your shop so many times. I think they're looking for a one or two times turnover per hour or something. like. I can't remember what the number is, mm-hmm. but there's a target number. And that's how you really decide what uh, speed to put it at. Mm. I, I pretty much, every time I go into the shop, unless I'm recording a video, which I pretty much don't do anymore, but um, I go in the shop and I turn mine on and I put it on low or medium mm-hmm. uh, just so it's always going when I'm in the shop. The only time I turn it on high, uh, if I'm going to be spraying or putting finish on, mm. I'll let it run for about an hour and I don't touch anything. But I'll let it run for about an hour before I even go into the shop, and then Clean then I do my finishing. Yeah, so you don't get so, that uh, dust nibs. Yeah. Yep. Uh, well, yeah. It, it it helps mitigate it. Nothing's going to get rid of it. But uh, right, right, right. Anyways, that's what I'd recommend doing is actually taking a look at the manual and saying what it, doing what it says as far as the the speed and figure out the volume of your shop and all that. Yeah. Now. Now the is it possible that the jet though is different than the one? Because I'm looking at I'm looking at my manual right now and it it actually tells you to mount it from the ceiling and it's got hooks on the top of it, you know, in order to mount it yeah. to floor yeah, joists and, and I, I, I don't know I don't know about the one. Yeah. I, all I know is that I remember a long time ago when I first got mine over twenty five years ago. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's had mounted on the wall. It has hooks yeah. to mount it from the ceiling too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it says well, mounted on the wall. Yeah. And Pyromatic makes kind of a fan style one, right? We have we've got a whole bunch of those at work. Yeah, they're they're a joke. <laughs> oh really? You don't <laughs> like them? That. No, they don't they're expensive. <laughs> oh, I know they're expensive. I tried to tell Luke that they don't a Powermatic actually sent me one and wanted me to do a video on it. And I used it for about a month and I said, This thing sucks it doesn't suck <laughs> depends on how you want to look at it, it <laughs> you it, thought it about did, that it's like it, well it doesn't it didn't it didn't do a darn thing really so okay. i just never did anything and i sold it oh wow okay i got rid of it they're 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 they are not they do not do what they claim they do now do you have one of the reusable filters guy or do you have I, I a disposable had, one for the jet yes um i don't know i've got i bought a box of them 20 some years ago and i still have half of them left i bought okay. a box of like 10 of them they were okay. generic for their size and i may change one out once every couple years when i think about it gotcha <laughs> all right all right well, uh, Steve, we hope that answers your question. Uh, you know, read your manual and see what yeah, it says. See what it says. So yeah. I've got the next question here. Yep. And this comes from Brian. Not that Brian or this Brian, but the other Brian. Brian it spells his name differently, too. So it's not Brian from the show. Sure it isn't. <laughs> Yeah. It says, you fellows have filled my head with hours and hours of information. Useless You're, information, but information. <laughs> You're truly the best podcast I've found. So before a guy's head begins to swell, that's way too late for that, Brian. <laughs> On with the question. I've started watching New Yankee Workshop again. Now they actually have, now that I actually have a 520 square foot shop to work out in. In the first season, Norm used what he called a panel cutting jig for the table saw. The fence of the jig was located on the blade side rather than on the operated side like the modern crosscut sled. This jig is dead simple, being made only of three boards. 
I had big plans to make a modern cross-cut sled, not an aircraft carrier. But with all the bells and whistles, now I'm completely rethinking my next table saw jig. Since Guy, like myself, is the only one of you old enough to remember the first episode, (laughs) this should probably be his question. Well, I could take it. Keep up the great work, fellows, and I appreciate what each of you bring to the table. Brian, I know exactly what he's talking about. And the way it worked, it was a very simple jig. It was just a piece of plywood that was maybe two feet across and maybe 18 inches deep. Mm-hmm. And he called it a, a panel cutting jig. And it had a, a, a piece of hardwood that fit in the miter slot, but the fence was on the other side. It was not towards the operator. It was on the other side of that. Yeah. So when you put the board on there, you held it in and you pushed it forward and it hit the fence and that's how it worked. Mm-hmm. I actually had one of those for a very, very long time. And I was never a fan of the big, huge cross cut sleds. Mm-hmm. I had a couple, um, but I use those mainly for small parts. Sure. Um, because the miter saws at that at that time it didn't have a capex, and whenever I needed to do a ninety degree cut on a board, that's what I would use. I would use a small cross cut sled, or my or my miter gauge. Um, anyways, yeah, those those panel things are a are a panel cutting jig, whatever you want to call it, was a actually a really nice thing to have. And I I said I had one for a long time. I don't know what happened to it. Um, is the adv- but, is the advantage to that that you're able to work with I guess wider or deeper? I'm not sure what the right. Yes, because yeah, I, yes. you could take you could take a you know a 36 by 48 panel to it because your your sled is starting on the table with the fence on the far side. Correct. And Correct. feed through Correct. that way. So the the you're you're not you're not limited by how far the blade is from the edge of the, the yeah. saw. Right. Don't you run into issues on the on the through cut side of it though? Running or do you just have a long enough runner in there to you just have a long enough runner in there? I yeah. mean, it's not designed to do like three foot wide boards. Okay. That's I mean, I, I wouldn't try to do a tabletop with it. Yeah. Maybe um, the deepest would be twenty four inches or something. Yeah. So it's yeah. it's it's just a little bit easier to do when you're doing with the, when you're dealing with the, the panels. I know like I've got the Incra Miter five thousand yeah hd pro deluxe whatever the heck it is and (laughs) um the powermatic also has a deeper there's more like three or four three inches more before the blade than there is on a regular table saw the table's a little bit different Mm -hmm. so i get almost almost like 26 27 inches of cross cut on that thing with my cross cut sled mm-hmm. which is kind of nice mm-hmm. um anyways brian what do you use to, to cross cut with you have a track saw don't you i do have, you have a, a dewalt De- I've, got, I've got a battery powered dewalt before you saw. had that what what did you use to make your cross cuts with mm-hmm. probably just a circular saw with a with some sort of a uh, uh, guide guide clamped on there, just a board clamped on on both mm-hmm. sides, and I'd use the insulation board, like inch and a half or two inch thick insulation board. I have a big four by eight sheet of that in the garage. Um, if I ever need to to go back and and use it that way, have you ever used a cross cut sled on your table saw? I'm sure you have. I I, I use a I have one for when my blade's set to forty five. I I used to have one for just when the blade's at 90, but now I just use my uh, anchor miter gauge with a auxiliary fence that's got T-track up, up to a point so I can clamp stop blocks and things like that easily. Right. So if yeah. you need to cross cut like an 18-inch piece of wood, you're going to use... Miter gauge, saw. and then I'll probably use the fence. When you say wide, okay, wide... Um, yeah. I will. Odds are, odds are it's probably as long as it's in my thirty-six inch uh, crosscut capacity. 
I'll take it off the fence of the table saw. Hmm. Yeah, I know. Living on the edge, guys. See, that's <laughs> no, all right. No, it, that's fine. It it hasn't. I haven't haven't had any issues yet. Obviously, if if it gets narrower than that, that's where I'll just still use the the miter gauge, and maybe I'll I'll you know. And if it's super close, I don't I don't know. I don't find myself in a spot where it's so wide that I can't get it with the miter gauge on my saw stop. Or mm-hmm. so narrow that I can't safely do it using the um, fence. Yeah, I'll cross cut plywood all day long using. And that fence. and that's what I'm doing it for, right? Like I don't yeah. do a lot of big solid wood yeah. surfaces. Okay. So what 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 I'm talking about here is almost ex- exclusively plywood. Yeah. That's probably good. And I, yeah. I, I should have uh, yeah. qualified that saying if it's not plywood. Got and it. it's like then 18, I would use my track 20, saw. 24 inch uh, yeah. solid wood top because oh, yeah, plywood yeah. doesn't have a grain direction, even though it shows because it, it yeah flip flops. Yeah. Flip flops. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. what about I, you? I use track, track, so. If it's 18 inches or less and we're talking hardwood, not necessarily plywood, then I will use my cross cut sled. That being said, I had some really long boards that were glued up panels that were 67 inches long and there was no way I was putting that onto my crosscut sled, in which case I used a track saw. I have an aircraft carrier. I I think I made it too big. Um, it's, it's just cumbersome to take on and off of the table saw. Um, there's really no need for it to be as big. You know, it's uh, 27 inches wide. There's no need for it. Um, so, you know, if I were to redo it, the unfortunate thing is that I know you talked about guy, how you've had crosscut sleds and they always, uh, run out and end up being out of calibration. Mine has not <laughs> lost its calibration. And I, I keep thinking is like, oh, once it's, you know, once, you know, once it's lost its calibration, I'll probably just get rid of it and, you know, use my anchor 5,000 and then, you know, just go with a exclusively go with, um, a track saw. But unfortunately, uh, it hasn't. So I continue to use it, and it's one of those crosscut sleds that has like a million one things that it can be that that it can do. Um, but unfortunately, I always forget what I can use it for, and I end up just making a jig for whatever I need yeah. uh, at the moment to cut on the table saw. But what I think is really interesting about this question is how the progression of this has gone over the years and how the thought process has changed. Yeah. Because, you know, I used to do it a lot like Norm used to do it, which is the, that panel cutting jig. Right. And that was the first time I'd saw that before that. I just always used a circular saw mm-hmm. and a straight edge clamped to the board and, and dealt with the, the, the tear out later. And then yeah. I saw that and I was like, Oh, that's awesome. And then started using that. And then it's just, you know, now my thought process is I'm using the track saw as much as I can to do those cross cuts, just the small stuff most of the time. And because now I've got an actual miter saw that actually cuts at 90 or 45, I just use my my miter saw for anything under, Mm -hmm. you know, 12 inches. It does everything I need it to do. And, and, and it's interesting anymore. generationally when we're talking about the new Yankee workshop, I, I can remember watching it as well as one of the first things that I started watching when I got into woodworking. And I thought wholeheartedly is like, Oh, I need to get a radial arm saw. Yeah. Was a radial arm saw that, you know, that, that is the tool for cross cutting. I, I had a radial arm saw for years. I wish I still had mine. Yeah. I got rid of it cause I didn't have the room. I've actually thought about getting one. It's, it was awesome. Just it mounting awesome. it to my to my uh, miter miter saw table. Yeah. All right. Anyway. We're really getting to the weeds. All right. All right. Uh, back to Brian. Yep. Mm-hmm. This question is from Natasha in Round Lake, Ontario, Canada. Ooh. Hey guys, love your podcast. Uh, please keep them coming. I was listening to a recent episode. 114 about the domino tips. And I'm now thinking of completing my kitchen cabinet project using dominoes instead of pocket screws for the cabinet construction as I already own a domino. 
I was curious as to how Brian prefers to assemble cabinets. I have already watched Guy's videos. Uh, do you use the domino? How do you go about end panel construction? How do you finish your cabinets? Any tips you can provide are greatly appreciated. Thanks, Natasha. So let's assume here that we're talking about a paint grade cabinet mm -hmm. with face frame construction. And uh, for that, typically I will use, I'll get a, um, a pre-finished plywood, like a UV one side ply, maple, uh, preferably maple plywood, um, three quarter inch. And I will make the floor and each of the two sides out of that. Um, and I will attach um, it. The way I go about doing it, it's the quickest way I found to do it. It's, it's pretty crude and rudimentary, but if I want the floor of that cabinet to sit, say four and a half inches off the floor, then I will take, I will just take some plywood off cuts and rip them to three and three quarter inch wide. And then I will simply just tack those onto the very bottom edge of my side to create a ledge for my uh, floor to sit on. And then I will just pocket hole screw that in from the bottom. Um, the floor, so pocket, pocket hole screws going from, you know, the bottom side of the floor into the side of the cabinet. And that kind of gets your base and two sides in shape. Um, a little bit of, uh, don't use wood glue in that case because it's a uh, UV one side plywood and it, it's not really going to, that glue is not going to take to that. Um, and from there I will rip four strips, three or four strips that are three to four inches wide and in the width of the cabinet and I'll pocket hole screw those. Um, mm. and I'll use those, uh, at the front and the back up top, uh, to hold that in place. And then, uh, on the back at the top and the bottom, uh, just so I've got something, to attach to the wall as mm -hmm. well as to attach my countertop at the front and back to. And at that point, the outsides of each side of the cabinet are clean. There's nothing, mm -hmm. nothing visible from a fastener standpoint. Mm -hmm. um, so if assuming the grade of the plywood is good enough, it could, once I attach a face frame, it's going to be good to go. And then usually I'll just, um, I used to actually uh, cut a groove into the, into the sides and into the, into the base and all of that to slide my back panel in. But mm -hmm. anymore, I just, uh, screw on a half inch pre-finished, uh, plywood to the back, which leaves an exposed plywood edge at the very back. But then I'll just use a little piece of scribe, um, to cover that up when I go to install, knowing that I'm going to have to do that anyway. So yeah, I find that to be the, it's kind of a quick and dirty way to do it, but using the tools in my shop, it's, it's the most efficient way to go about doing it. So no domino, all pocket holes. Typically. Now yeah. it, that's for the base cabinet. Sometimes I'll bring the domino in on, I don't do a whole lot of uppers. It seems like usually it's base cabinets with a, with a countertop and then floating shelves up above. Um, but yeah, sometimes I'll get the domino involved. Um, truthfully, it, it, sometimes it just depends on the day too. I've probably done it half dozen different ways and just, mm -hmm. Yeah, depends on if I'm tired. I really don't like using pocket screws just because um, my drill bit is dull and that makes it un <laughs> unfun to use. <laughs> um, and and the you know all the sawdust and everything it generates. Um, so sometimes I'll bust the domino out and do it that way if I don't feel like using the the cleat at the bottom. So I don't know. It's kind of a hodgepodgey way, but it, it's really just it works. what I feel for the day. But the way I described yeah. is, the, is the way I typically do it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally cool. It's a very detailed explanation. Hopefully, hopefully we didn't lose too many listeners in that. Uh, <laughs> Guy, what about you? Well, the, the, the way I do it in real life and the way I do it on video are two completely different things. Um, if it's a kitchen cabinet, you're not typically the only time you're going to see the sides is on the end cabinets. Yeah. So I'm just making the parts, putting them in place, putting a nail or a staple through it to hold it in place. And then I'm driving screws in right from the sides. Yep. Yep. Um, Cause you're not going to see any of that stuff anyways. Mm -hmm. And 
once it's hung or put on the floor or whatever, you can put a return panel on it. Or I know at work, what we do is we skin everything. Mm-hmm. So we'll take, cause everything we do at work is, is face frame. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll take that and we'll put a, a quarter inch uh, panel on the end to cover up the screws or any pocket screws. And we will pocket screw the uh, face frames mm-hmm. to the front. Yeah. Uh, we can make cabinets. I can make cabinets like blindingly fast. Right. Um, With nails and, and, and yeah, screws. Yeah. yeah. And the, the cabinets go together in 10 minutes. Sure. Um, it's just typically making doors and drawers and all that stuff. That's what takes the time. Right. The cabinets are easy. Yeah. So. What about so you? When, when I, the only, I shouldn't say the only cabinets, but uh, I made <clears throat> my pantry in my old pantry cabinets for my old house. And I used all dominoes for that. That's not necessary. And the reason is because the visible side ended up being concealed and painted anyway. So really what I should have done, and it would have been a lot faster and just as strong would have been staples, pneumatic staples or nails and screws going straight in. And if you watch some of, Oh gosh, I can't remember his name, but, um, uh, Paulini, Gregory Paulini, he does a series on how to make, kitchen cabinets and how to make uh, standard standard construction cabinets. And he does the same thing. It's just screws and pneumatic uh, crown or staples, pneumatic staples. And, uh, you know, and then you're putting a fascia on the outside. Uh, so Natasha, if you, if you want to go about using the domino because you got it, by all means, use the domino. But uh, do know that traditionally to do it fast and a lot of these uh, cabinet shops are doing it fast and doing it in a production level. It's just, <laughs> you okay there, Brian? Sorry about that. <laughs> no problem, back. man. Uh, the it, microphone over. It, it's usually just a uh, pneumatic, uh, uh, brads, uh, staples, uh, and or screws. Um, well, staples, uh, or brad nails and screws. Uh, just to hold the panel or the nailer in place and then driving it through with screws. But Natasha, by all means, if you got the domino and you want to do that, do that. And I do that sometimes too, particularly like with my shop cabinets or cabinets that are going to be standalone, not built ins. Uh, I, I will use the domino because, you know, I don't want to have to go through, you know, the side and then see the screw because God forbid you see a screw. Um <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, Natasha, if that's what you want to do, by all means do that, but just know traditionally it's, it's not done that way and that it's perfectly fine if it's not done that way. All right. Are we, are we done with that question now? I, <laughs> I guess so. I guess so. I don't know. Is there, is there more to it? I don't know. I don't know. Um, all right. Uh, Hui, I think you've got the next one. Okay. So this is the part three question to Chuck Lovelady's question. Uh, and the third question to his three-part question or three uh, group of three questions, my perception is that the people who seem to get hurt the most are woodworking professionals who become too comfortable or familiar with machines. Is that a fair assessment? I am a ho- hobbyist woodworker. FYI, on three, I am just asking for a comment or my observation. Have a great day, Chuck. Um. I, I would, Chuck, I'd have to argue with that. I, I know a lot of hobbyists and, and weekend woodworkers who have gotten hurt uh, on table saws, on joiners, on, you know, random woodworking tools, even a lot of them on hand tools, getting pretty seriously hurt using hand tools. Uh, and I, I, I don't necessarily think that it is just the woodworking professionals that are becoming too familiar with their machines. I mean, by golly, I know plenty of hobbyists that have gotten really, really close to really uh, seriously hurting themselves. And uh, I will say this, that it is, I think, a matter of comfortability, comfort, oh, I can't say it. it. It is a matter of being too comfortable with the tool that sometimes you often get um, those accidents that happen. Uh, I will also say that 
it happens a lot when you're really tired. And I know that the one time I really almost uh, soiled my pants was when I was tired in the shop and I didn't properly chuck up a router bit. And it was a large router bit and it went flying across the room and hit the garage door and nearly missed me. Uh, so, you know, I, I felt really, really stupid because it was late. It was some, some, something like 1130 at night when I was in the shop and I had to get up for the work the next day. And it was just a reminder for me. It's like, yeah, you need to stop. It's time to stop. And you need to just go to bed and just think about this and deal with it. Uh, I don't think it is just the woodworking professionals, although, you know, I might defer that to you guys. You know, you guys are running a, you know, a shop that uh, has a lot of new people and a lot of folks that have been there for a while. What are some of the things that you often see? What kind of accidents are you seeing um, that you encounter? Brian? Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. We, I think, I think hobbyists might be more, more susceptible. I mean, especially if you think about it in terms of injuries per hour spent in the shop. I mean, you're talking about mm -hmm. a full-time woodworker spending 40, 50, 60 hours a week in the shop. Um, you may hear about those more, but they're spending a ton more time exposed to injury than, than a hobbyist might be who only spends a couple hours on a weekend. Um, well, I think our most recent injury might've been, it was just, a one of our guys nicked his finger on the track saw, um, mm -hmm. when he got his hand out of place, uh, trying to make a cut near the end of the day. Um, and thankfully it wasn't, wasn't too bad. I mean, it was bad enough, but not so bad that, um, he lost any of it, but yeah. Um, guy, what well, you've been, you've been out in the shop far longer than I have. What, um, what have you seen? Well, I, I think that the, the, the hobbyist versus, you know, professional woodworker there, it's two completely different animals. Yeah. I think, you know, I can't speak to other hobbyist woodworkers, only from what I've experienced myself. Mm -hmm. And most of the time that I've, you know, cut myself or nicked myself or done any of that stuff, it's simply because I was being stupid. I wasn't tired. I wasn't doing anything. I was just, it was more... Just, uh, I know better than the machine. I guess you'd almost call it hubris. And that's what the, the problem was. It was just me not paying attention to what I'm doing. Mm -hmm. In a professional environment, it's a completely different animal. And what it really mm -hmm. has to do, I know when I'm in the, the, the shop at work, when I was putting in 10 hours, 10 hours a day on the floor there before I got sick, I would, you know, there were some days... You know, we start at seven and work till 530. Mm. And there was times as early as four o'clock or so, I knew I was dragging and my mind was just not as sharp as it should be. Mm -hmm. And I tried to find other things to do in the shop that didn't mm. require me working on power tools that could cut my hand off. Mm. Um, yeah. The biggest thing that, you know, I deal with at work and I, I, I do a lot of the safety classes that we bring when we have people come in from the outside. We have this thing called the advanced school where we teach, you know, we give people uh, skills that hopefully will be able to help them get a job. They don't necessarily work for us when they leave this class. But anyways, I, I typically teach the safety classes there and I do the safety classes in the shop. Anyways, Bottom line is what I, what I tell people always is, you know, always know where your hands are in relationship mm -hmm. to where the blade is. Mm -hmm. And the, the biggest thing that we deal with in production is people standing in a machine for a couple hours doing the same thing over and mm -hmm. over and over again. It's not exposure to the tool, but it's exposure to their mind. They, their thoughts are elsewhere. They're mm. not concentrating on what they're doing because they're just doing the same thing over and over and over again. And instead of paying attention to what they're doing on the table saw, they're thinking about their girlfriend or one of their kids or whatever. And they're just not concentrating anymore because they're just, the, the repetition is getting to them. 
Yeah. And that's typically where we see accidents at work is after a guy has been working with something for a, for a lo- doing one task for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know that's what I look for when I'm doing anything. I, I really have to start paying attention to what I'm doing if I'm doing a bunch of, you know, pieces. Yeah. For what that's worth. That was a very long and winded answer. I'm sorry I took so long. <laughs> no, that was great information. And Chuck, great question. Thanks for bringing it up. Uh, you know, we we try to talk about safety here and, you know, as often as we can, but it's always a, I always find it to be an interesting topic. So, Guy, I think you've got the last question, buddy. All right. This comes from Curtis Van Campen. And Curtis says, good afternoon, gentlemen. Thank you for your podcast. I really appreciate and you fellows. Long story short, I'm a re-engaging woodworker after taking a 20-year hiatus. Due to life requirements of work travel frequency, I was unable to keep up my hobby. I now have the time and hopefully will never have to fly somewhere for work again to start anew. Things have changed quite a bit the past couple decades, so my, so have my interests in terms of woodworking. Uh, I'm going to paraphrase. This is a very long thing. My tour requirements are much different today than they were 20 years ago. And he starts talking about one of the things he requires is a drum sander. And he says, I don't have the desire to rotate the work anymore. Um, my specific needs are 18 inch capability for what he's doing, what his interests are. And, um, you know, with all that said, I've trimmed my internet interest list down to a jet 1836 and supermax 1938. I imagine some or all of you have experience with both and would like your feedback. I'm not considerably currently considering models with moving height adjustable belts, such as the shop Fox Grizzly. However, if you have anything to add on those, it would be nice to hear. Glad you have a new host. That's Brian. Brian's actually been here a long time. This question is probably old. I'm sorry. Uh, it looks like he's going to be a great fit for the podcast. Jury's best, out on that one. But, yeah, yeah. Best wishes to all of you. So I've had the Supermax 1938. And I think we, you mm-hmm. still have one, don't you? I, I still have it, yeah. Okay. The... The thing people think about drum sanders for and how they're actually used are actually two different things. You, the, the, the drum sanders for hobbyist woodworkers, if they're not oscillating, they're a rough tool. They're, gonna, mm. they're not designed for thicknessing. Right. They're designed for sanding, taking off like a couple thousandths of an inch at a time. So um, that being said, they do leave very deep scratches in the wood. And you're going to spend just as much time sanding those out as you would with anything else, if maybe not more time. The biggest time saver here is when you're (coughs) trying to flatten things, door panels, tabletops, things like that is where they really shine. So like mine, I have a Powermatic now, which is a 2244. In other words, it's got an open end on it. I can actually put a 44-inch tabletop through it mm-hmm. uh, just by flipping around the sides. The 1938 was, you know, 19 inches or 38. But that was strictly for flattening stuff. I never used it to do like final sanding. I never put like 220 grit in the thing. It was always, you know, it's always 80 or 100 or 120. Yeah. Um, the main thing I also use it for is to uh, clean up my shop saw and veneer when I'm, you know, getting eighth inch or sixteenth inch veneer. Anyways, on to this question here. I have not personally not used a Jet eighteen thirty six. I have used a Supermax nineteen thirty eight, and it was a wonderful, wonderful machine. Mm-hmm. Once it's dialed in, it works really well. The the power on it was more than sufficient. Um, yeah, I didn't have any problems with it. The reason I went to the Powermatic was because of my relationship, A, my relationship with Powermatic more than anything else. 
But once I got that, there's a couple things on that machine that I found I really, really liked. First of all, it's very easy to adjust. Um, to get all that stuff level and coplanar is really super easy on that machine. Uh, also, the digital display is not just a uh, uh, gimmick. Mm -hmm. It's actually really, really nice because once you set that, you can just set it to take off like two thousandths of an inch. Two thousandths of an inch, yeah. And there's no, it takes all the guesswork out of it. So it's actually extremely handy. I really like the Powermatic. Brian, if, do you have one at home? Have you used one? Nope. Nope. Uh, don't own one, never used one, and really don't, don't see one in my future. Yeah. You're mostly building plywood products, correct? Yeah. And then just small boxes and gift type things for family and friends all right mm -hmm. all right that's right mm -hmm. things for around the house so we what what got you, what made you decide a to get one and what do you like or dislike about your power your, your supermax what do i dis i i guess i don't know what to compare it to because it's the you only no baseline right it's the only drum to and i'm happy with it it's easy to adjust uh it was easy to dial in um, I have it mounted on top of a roll around shop cart cabinet and I've used it mainly for doors when I've had to take it down uh, to final thickness. Um, I've used it on veneer, a lot for veneer. I've used it for tabletops, uh, smaller tabletops, not the big honking tabletops that I've been doing lately. Uh, and it works fine. Uh, I know that the reason why I went with the Supermax over the Jet, and I believe the Supermax was a little bit more expensive than the Jet, and the reason why I went with the Supermax is, one, I, I had asked you, Guy, and you had recommended it greatly, um, but you ha I don't think you you had not used the Jet either. And I want to say when I asked but you... there's you a reason I got the Supermax versus the Jet. What was the reason? Ease of changing the belts. Yeah. So I remember also going to the community shop on the base that I work at. And they were telling me, oh, you don't want to use that machine. It's a pain in the butt to change out the grits and to dial it in and whatnot. I was like, oh, okay. So I ended up not using it. I ended up buying a Supermax on my own. Um, so I, the only reason why I went with the Supermax was from other folks' recommendations, you being one of them guy, and then the base shop that I was using before I even had a shop of my own. And I just remember them saying like, uh, the jet is okay. It's a pain in the butt to, to dial in and to change out the grits. Yeah. Sean, um, he has a jet. He had a jet. He had, yeah. a, he had the 1632. Yeah. What was his thoughts on it? He, he liked it. He was wishing okay. it was bigger. A, okay. uh, it was bigger. And I think he wanted to get and buy an oscillating one. I think he bought that used and he got a really okay. good deal on it. Was why, yeah. why he had the jet. But like I said, I know after reading a lot, watching a lot of videos and stuff like that on the, on the, the drum sanders, I, eventually went with the Supermax strictly because of changing the belts. It's pretty easy to change the belts. It's very easy to change the belts. It's actually a lot easier to change than a Powermatic. A Powermatic's kind of a pain in the butt. Oh, really? Okay. Uh, yeah. Um, it's not a big deal, but I would still rather just have it the way the Supermax did it. Mm -hmm. um, so, but I really like the Powermatic. If you can, yeah. if you can afford the the green, I really would recommend the Powermatic over mm -hmm. the Supermax, mm -hmm. mainly because of its adjustability and its precision when dialing in the height. The Does it have a digital readout on yep. it? Mm, yep. Yeah, that's a that's that's a huge thing. When I was to set the height with the Supermax after you run it through the first time and you get your initial height, I just spun the wheel an eighth of a turn. Yeah. You know, that's 
that's the most precise you can get with it is you spin the wheel an eighth of a turn. Yeah. It's that's in other words, it's not very precise. Um, right. right. But that's spinning it an eighth of a turn is like taking off like three thousandths of an inch, which is less than the thickness, the thickness of a sheet of paper. Sure. So sure. now that's how much you're taking off at a time. If you think you're going to get a drum sander and get it from, you know, uh, an inch down to three quarters of an inch, you're going to be there all <laughs> day long. It takes forever. Now, oh, so I have used it for end grain cutting boards, and I've only started making end grain cutting boards because I have way too many scraps. But uh, but I I use it to even out or to you know flush up everything when it's glued up. Yeah, and it takes a long time. Yeah, but. You know, you can only take off, like you said, an eighth of a turn at a time. Yeah. And that's what I do as well, an eighth of a turn. Yeah. So um, anyways, I hope that that helped a little bit with your dilemma there, Curtis. And thank you for email. And have have fun with your, uh, sounds like your retirement. Yeah. So good luck to you. So I think that's going to do it. And... um, for the questions anyways. Brian, what do you got going on in your shop? Nothing. It's Lent. It's Lent. I'm on my, I'm on my Lenten uh, shop sabbatical, which has re- truthfully been awesome. Um, yeah. Although the, the exception to that is my, my, uh, our middle child, Bennett, he's a third grader and they had an invention project at school that they needed to do. And they had a suspended flashlight reading something or another. So we just made a little, a little frame and then a, uh, counter counterweight out of a like a four by four chunk of maple uh, with a hole drilled through it for the rope and all that. Oh, cool. So oh. a little bit of sawdust, but uh, just just an hour or so and some quality time with him, which was uh, which was a good thing. Yeah, that's family about, time. That's not shop time. Exactly. Yeah, that's yeah. different. What about different. what about you, We? Oh man, uh, I've been cutting a lot of dovetails uh, <laughs> for the last two weeks, and. Uh, using a fret saw like crazy to cut out all the waste have so i guess i've not realized this but have you ever worked with walnut for a long period of time and your hands start to get like really dark no Does, i no I need to work with more walnut i think i, no? I don't my hands have started getting really dark i mean air dried walnut one. or kiln dried it's it's air dried maybe that's what it is maybe i that, don't know i don't know why i've either, never had that problem I've never had that problem, but uh, my hands have been getting really dark from being around this walnut. But it might be also because I've got a ton of fine dust from the fret saw, and that's yeah. just kind of staining my fingers and whatnot. But anyway, I'm, I finally uh, got them all cut out. I'm just chopping away at the waist to the baseline of the dovetails. And yeah, I think next time I'm going to try to figure out a way to machine cut them instead of hand cut them. It, it take, took way too long. Um Guy, what do you got not, going just on? Just not use them. Um, in the shop, oh, don't use dovetails at all, right? Yeah, don't use dovetails. Figure something else out. So, yeah. um, in, in the shop, really nothing, to be honest with you. I've, I've at, at work, I'm not in the shop at all anymore, it seems like. I'm in the office you know, 40 hours a week. But you're doing training. I'm doing right. I'm doing a lot of training for the guys, and we've we've adopted some new things uh, as far as the CAD department goes. So my my workload has increased a little bit, and they've uh, actually Brian has put me on a, a special project that's top secret. Top secret. It's top secret. Nobody knows what I'm doing, even though I have a desk that's right out in the middle of the main reception area. <laughs> Nobody sees what I'm doing out there. Are you allowed um, to talk about? We're going to wait for the big tada. Yeah, we're going to wait for oh, the okay. big tada. The, there's going to be a big tada moment. Um, probably within two years, I would estimate. Two, um, two to se- somewhere between two and seven years from now. Yeah. Two and seven years. Hopefully, I'll still be alive then. Um, that's about it. And nothing going on in my shop at home. I, I put out a video this weekend of more 3D printing stuff, and I got the usual, you know, we hate you because you're not doing woodworking, woodworking. content anymore. But uh, other than that. Yeah, I saw, saw you uh, deleted my comment. 
Yes, I did. Yours was the first one that came up. I actually get alerts for people that, that are negative and nasty. And I, I think I just blocked you altogether, Brian. Because <laughs> you're just you're just an awful, nasty person. I just said it, Brian, with a Y. You'll never even know it was me. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So um, – we would like to thank everyone who did leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps us in the search rankings. And of course, we also appreciate the support and feedback. So please remember this podcast is here to answer questions from the woodworking community. So if you do have any woodworking questions and you'd like them answered by our expert panel here, you can send them to the podcast contact page at woodshoplifepodcast.com or DM us through Instagram at Woodshop, Woodshop Life. And I can be found on YouTube at Guy's Woodshop and, uh, or just about any of the social media stuff at Guy's Woodshop. Where can you be found at, Hui? AlabamaWoodworker.com, and all the links to my social media are there, although I haven't been doing much of social media at all. I've been spending a lot more time with my family as of late and in the shop, spending quite a bit of time in the shop. Uh, Brian, how about you? Uh, I, you can find my profile on the simplecove.com website at Brian Schmidt. All right. Well, very good. And, uh, we will talk to you guys in a couple of weeks. Talk to you in a couple. Have See a, ya. Have a good night. See ya.